Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get itself or even if they don't. Today is Friday, April the 23rd, 2021. This is episode 2864 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it is an expert counsel Q&A show, the rounded out end of the week monster show. And this is what I've got for you today. Derek Bonpietro, all about storing kerosene uh, or other fuels for heat. Uh, Doc Bones on thoughts on comfrey or other things you can do for tendinitis in a situation where you you just can't go to the doctor like a long-term grid down. You are the highest level of medical response there is. What do you do for tendinitis? It's a long, drawn-out recovery. John Pugliano will talk about taking early Social Security withdrawals and investing in crypto stocks. Uh, the crypto thing is a little out of John's wheelhouse. You'll hear that. I'll give you a few thoughts of it on my own when we get there. Till the tool man Cook is talking about the screw splitter today. Splitting wood. Is it a deal or is it a dud? Well, I'll let him tell you all about that. I had my I had my thoughts on it prior to this question being asked, because I have seen it before, but I didn't care enough to look deeply because I have like a uh, a harbor freight one that looks like you're on one of those ski machines or something, you know. It's got like these two. It uses and it uses hydraulics, and it, I love it. It's great. Uh, I think it's worth a hundred and something bucks. I gave for it. I think a hundred ten dollars. I gave for it. Like, God, I don't know how long ago, but I bought it when we lived in Arkansas, and I've been here. Those be nine years, so it, it's it's a while. Uh, making sure you're getting enough fat and protein, and leaving the keto lifestyle with Doctor Kenberry. And today I'll have quotes, uh, a thought, thoughts on a quote of the day for you is my anchor segment. I'll tell you the quote now, but we'll dig into it when we get to my segment. This is by Jim Rohn, and he said, If you don't design your own life plan, chances are you'll fall into someone else's plan. And guess what they have planned for you? Not much. I'll tell you why. That might actually be better if it was not much. Well, what they might have planned for you it might be an awful lot, but an awful lot of things you don't like. Uh, another uh, quote I can throw at you today, and again, maybe we'll dig into this when I get to my segment. I don't know if it comes from anybody in particular, but it was an old mentor of mine used to say it. He used to say, life is like a shit sandwich. The more bread you have, the less shit you have to eat. I think there's something to that, too. We'll talk about all of that more in just a bit. We're going to go ahead and dig in right now, start right out of the gate hot with Derek Bonpietro. No, hey, actually, i got to, I got to talk about something here, uh, two things. Number one, our matey, did you buy some pirate chain? You know, when it was $0.08, cents, $0.09, cents, $0.10, cents, $0.20, cents, $0.50, cents, and Jack was saying you should buy some? Remember we just had a thing with uh, Dre uh, Cotta for the third visit to TSB yesterday? Did you? Because right now it is it's still it is still going par, 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 parabolic. Um Last night I discovered something, though, that was kind of odd, and I don't know if it will help many people, but it's one of those things that like just happens, and you're like, wow, I should tell people this happened. So I was thinking about getting rid of some Bitcoin Cash yesterday, and I have an account with CoinEx, and you can trade Bitcoin Cash there. So I, there was a weird thing with the different ways they were asking for addresses, so I wasn't sure. So I sent like .1 Bitcoin Cash. So as soon as it hit, 
I see this thing for a pending deposit for BSV, that's Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, which was a fork. So Bitcoin Cash forked out of Bitcoin. So if you held Bitcoin at the time, then you got an, if you had four Bitcoins, you got four Bitcoin Cash. Well, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision worked the same way. Now, I thought I had gotten all my split from the BSV fork. But I put it in there, and all of a sudden there's .1 BCH and .1 BSV in my account, meaning it just split itself. I'm like, really? Okay. So I put a full Bitcoin Cash in there, and that split. So I ended up with like 1.1 BSV and 1.1 Bitcoin Cash in there. And so I, I just, and I won't say an amount, but I just threw the rest of it in there, right? And a little bit more split out, and then the rest didn't. And then I just, since I now, I was going to dump the Bitcoin Cash to do something with, uh, with it as far as investment into a different crypto. And there was enough BSV in there that, that covered what I wanted to do, and I just sent the Bitcoin Cash back to myself. So I was able to find some unclaimed fork Bitcoin Satoshi Vision in my Bitcoin Cash. I'm not saying that would happen for you. I am saying if you're holding some BCH that you've been holding long enough, then maybe you never got your split, and that would be one way to check. And I don't know if that's supposed to do that, but it did. That's all I'm going to say is it did, and then... I used it to buy something else, and I just thought that was a cool thing. That was like found money, and uh, yeah, um, man. All right, with that, let's talk about something non-crypto related here. Um, Derek Bonpietro talking about storing kerosene for heat. How long can you, and what should you be doing to do it right? Hey, TSB listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a question about kerosene fuels from Paul Paul, I sincerely apologize. Your question went into the spam folder, and so this one dates back many months ago before the winter. But, hey, I figure better late than never. And let me get down to the brass tacks here when it comes to using kerosene fuel in a heater. Paul writes, how long will stored kerosene last for use in kerosene heaters? The details. I have a 20-gallon barrel filled to the top with kerosene that is about six to seven years old for use with kerosene heaters and emergency winter use. I have added Pry-D as recommended several times over the years. I'm wondering how long I can expect it to last and be safe for use for that purpose. Will Pry-D foul the wick in a kerosene heater? Do I need to use it? All right, Paul, let's hammer out the kerosene. Now, kerosene is kind of in the family of fuels like diesel, home heating oil, and jet aviation fuel. Fuel for the turbines, not the little propellers. So... All these fuels are kind of alike in that they have very high flash points. They're stable, meaning like you could throw a match into a bucket full of it and it's not going to explode. Um, gasoline wouldn't even do that, but gas gasoline is volatile. It has a low flash point, and you can see that it, it evaporates almost instantly as soon as it hits the atmosphere, unlike all these other fuels. So they're kind of heavy and slippery, more of like an oil than what you'd consider like gasoline to be. And kerosene happens to be a very, very clean refined version of diesel fuel so they're related and but kerosene is a little bit better and that's why we use it for things like you know lamps and heaters you can use diesel fuel in those situations but it tends to burn a little dirtier it has a little bit more carbon output you know that's going to be the soot and the smoke coming from it and probably wouldn't be something you'd want to burn inside of your house but they're all kind of in the same family the bonus of them being in the same family is that they store for a really long time 
unlike the gasoline counterpart. So a 20-gallon barrel, like Paul discusses here, not sure what kind of barrel this is. 20 gallons is a good size, probably not going to be easily movable. So I'm assuming this is probably like a plastic barrel that you've got maybe in like the shed or the garage. Now, as long as it's rated for fuel, that's fine. It typically, kerosene is going to be a blue container, but as long as this is capped off and doesn't expose the fuel to the atmosphere, we're not going to have any kind of water absorption problems. Now, the biggest things for storing fuels are moisture and particulate, like dirt, contamination. So moisture, this could be obviously coming in from the atmosphere if the container is open. So it's just sitting there and absorbing the moisture. The other big problem is if the container is not located in a cool, dry place, you're actually getting condensation on the inside of the container. So for example, if you could imagine the part of the container that doesn't have fuel in it is kind of like your bathroom mirror when you take a shower and that the water is going to condensate in that exposed area up top where the fuel doesn't occupy the container and it's going to condense out and then go into the fuel. That causes some other problems. It can become cloudy and so when you're looking at the fuel it's no longer clear and since now we have moisture in there we have bacterial growth. You have a biological contamination, and this is usually black in color, and you can definitely see this growing, both of which are going to require heavy filtration. So we wouldn't want to just pour that into a heater because that is going to clog the wick up. That's going to cause problems with the combustion. So we would want to pour this through some type of filter before going into the stove or the heater. So, for example, we'd want to maybe pour it into another container, which we then take that container and then pour that into our heater. Obviously, that's going to be more expense and more time. So the whole idea is to eliminate moisture getting in. That means use a good container, cool, dry place, fill it right to the top, cap it off. Now, the Pry-D additive, uh, I mean, that's certainly going to help it. I don't think it's really necessary if you're storing it properly. I doubt if you're using it according to the directions and the proper ratios that it's going to cause any problems with the wick. I'd say if you've already got it or if it's cheap enough for you, throw it in there, but really the storage of the fuel itself is definitely going to help you more than the additive. Then obviously the particulate or dirt contamination. So basically make sure the container's clean. Make sure when you're handling the fuel and you're transferring it from container to container and that everything is clean. Okay, dirt contamination is going to be from the operator and not necessarily the fuel. Now I'm sure it could be in the fuel from where you bought it from, but again, filtration is key. And if you're putting it into a container and it's setting, contamination is gonna to fall to the bottom Water is heavier than the fuel, and it's going to condense out at the bottom. So if you're not pouring the fuel, you're not going to transfer that into another container. If you're siphoning it, and you're not siphoning from directly on the bottom, you are now getting a really clean fuel coming out of the siphon into another container, and all that contamination stays at the bottom. So that will certainly help you out as well if the fuel's been in there for many years. All right, the big question, how long is it going to last? Well, as Jack always says, I don't know. I think most people would agree that five years for a diesel or kerosene fuel is a good amount of time for storage. When you look at the Pry-D website, they're saying that with the additive, we can go up to 10 years. I am no scientist, and I did not stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but if the fuel's in a good container, we don't have any contamination, no moisture, no bacteria, and the fuel is not exposed to direct sunlight, it's not going to degrade or change in any way. I wouldn't have a problem burning that fuel if it was 10 or 15 years old. Now, would I want to store diesel fuel like that and then pour it into a modern diesel electronic truck? Eh, probably not. But if I'm going to burn that in some type of stove or in an old truck or something like that, that probably isn't going to care about how old the fuel is as much, I'd say go for it. 
If you're using that fuel, obviously to heat your house in a stove, you want to be paying close attention to the combustion. Make sure that the flame looks okay and that we don't have any kind of soot coming out of the flame. Obviously, that stuff you don't want inside of your house, but I'd say run it. Now, obviously, if you got 20 gallons of this stuff and then you're going to keep waiting a few more years to use it in an emergency and then boom, the emergency hits and that's all the fuel you got, probably want to work into some kind of rotation. So maybe try to consume that fuel and then replace it with a newer fuel. Like if you're burning home heating oil, you can go ahead and pour that right in. So maybe every couple years, dump that in your tank, refill your kerosene container, and start with fresh. If you don't have home heating oil, find somebody that does. Find somebody with an old piece of equipment, old tractor. If it's an old diesel tractor or something like that, it's not going to care, especially if you're blending it in with other diesel in the tank. And, of course, they've, they're going to hold more than 20 gallons. So maybe find somebody that will take it or maybe even pay you to take it. I don't know. But I'd say if you can turn it over and you're not too worried about losing a little bit of money on that, rotate that fuel if you can. And if you can't, I, I wouldn't sweat it. That stuff is going to hold for a long time. All right, Paul, I hope I put your mind at ease. Thanks for the questions, guys. Very sorry for the very late delay on the answer. Take care. All right, next we have Doc Bones talking to you about treating tendonitis in a where-there-is-no-doctor type situation. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the medical preparedness website doomandbloom.net, co-author of award-winning books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Hunter in Virginia, who writes, How should we treat tendon pain now versus in an emergency? I know tendons take a long time to heal, but what can we plan on using to help facilitate the healing? Would this be an application for comfrey ointment? Hunter, it's important to know your anatomy, so let's talk about what tendons are. Tendons are thick, fibrous cords that join your muscles to your bones. Now, this is different from a ligament. A ligament is a fibrous band also, but not quite as thick, and it connects one bone to another. Now, when tendons become irritated or inflamed, the condition is called tendonitis. Tendonitis causes acute pain and tenderness makes it difficult to move the affected joint. Maybe the most well-known tendonitis is tennis elbow, but any tendon can actually become inflamed. Besides the elbow, the most common ones are the shoulder, the knee, the wrist, and the heel. Signs and symptoms of tendonitis tend to occur at the point where the tendon attaches to the bone, and they typically include pain when you're moving the affected limb or joint, sometimes described as a dull ache, tenderness when it's touched, and swelling. Although tendonitis can be caused by a sudden injury, this condition is much more likely to stem from repetitive movement, like swinging a tennis racket or working on an assembly line. It's more common in people whose jobs involve a lot of exertion or maybe awkward positions, a frequent overhead reaching, or maybe something that causes vibrations. With sports, tendonitis is sometimes due to faulty technique. If you're swinging a tennis racket wrong, you're going to develop tendonitis. Of course, some other factors besides bad technique put you at risk. Age is probably the most important. As you age, your muscles and tendons become less flexible, which leads to injury. If tendon irritation persists for several weeks or months, a condition known as tendinosis may develop. This condition involves degenerative changes in the tendon along with abnormal new blood vessel growth. Without treatment, the tendon becomes so weak it actually snaps in two, which we call a rupture. But let's not let it get that far. 
The goals of tendinitis treatment are to relieve your pain and to reduce inflammation. Taking care of tendinitis at home involves a similar strategy as we use for sprains. That's called RICE, R-I-C-E. R is for rest. Avoid activities that increase the pain or swelling. Most people try to work or play through the pain. Don't. Rest is essential to tissue healing. But it doesn't mean complete bed rest. You can do other activities and exercises that don't stress the injured tendon. I is for ice. To decrease pain, muscle spasm, and swelling, apply ice to the injured area for up to 20 minutes several times a day. Ice packs or soaks with ice and water all can help, but the most benefit will be seen in the first 48 hours. C is for compression. Because swelling can result in loss of motion of an injured joint, compress the area with elastic wraps or compressive bandages. Be careful not to compromise the circulation, however. Toes and fingers should be pink and warm and have normal sensation. E is for elevation. If tendonitis affects your ankle, for example, raise the affected leg above the level of your heart to reduce swelling. Different medicines are used for tendonitis. The most common are pain relievers like Aleve, Advil, and Motrin. These are very good choices. Topical creams may also be effective in relieving pain. Now, if you're seeing an orthopedic specialist, they may inject steroids or anesthetics around the tendon to relieve inflammation and decrease pain. Injections of cortisone reduce inflammation and could be useful. This isn't a long-term therapy, though. Too long on these medications and tendons become weaker and they may rupture. You may also benefit from special exercise therapy designed to stretch and strengthen the affected muscle tendon unit. This is now considered a first-line treatment. Some suggest contracting a muscle while stretching it out. I mentioned that rest is a key part of treating tendonitis, but prolonged inactivity can cause stiffness in your joints. After a few days of completely resting the injured area, gently move it through its full range of motion to make sure you're maintaining joint flexibility. Now, you asked about alternative remedies, Hunter. Sure enough, while surgery and other high-tech techniques can help tendonitis, we may have to rely one day on natural and home remedies to deal with tendon inflammation. One option is acupuncture. Acupuncture may release the body's natural endorphins and send signals to the brain to calm the nervous system. Very, very small needles, but some training is involved. Another option is massage therapy. Transverse friction is a massage technique that's sometimes used for tendonitis. The massage strokes used are deep and applied directly to the affected area, but in a direction that's perpendicular to the actual tendon. It may help reduce pain and improve blood flow. Dietary supplements, they exist also for tendonitis, but I should mention they aren't subject to routine testing by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, so I can't vouch for their effectiveness. But here are some. White willow. The bark of white willow contains salicin, which has effects similar to aspirin and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, may help with pain relief and reduce inflammation. Turmeric. The curcumin in turmeric is being studied for the same purpose, but only animal studies exist so far. Boswellia, same thing. It's an herbal extract that has anti-inflammatory properties, also shown in animal studies only so far. Bromelain is found in pineapples. Now, this enzyme has been studied in inflammatory conditions and may be helpful one day as well. We still need more information. You mentioned comfrey ointments. Comfrey ointments have been used to heal bruises as well as pulled muscles and ligaments. They've also been used for fractures, sprains, strains, and osteoarthritis. But beware, never ingest this stuff, never eat it, 
nor apply it to broken skin. It can cause major damage to your liver. Use it for no more than 10 days at a time and definitely don't give it to kids. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. Also, subscribe to us at doomandbloom.net so you never miss an article or video. And our new channels and groups are now on Odyssey, MeWe, and PrepperNet. Thanks again. So my little addition here on this with Comfrey is a couple things. One, Comfrey, with a lot of injuries like this, can aid in healing, but it also is something that deals with the acute issue of pain and inflammation. Good and can be bad. So be careful with anything that can reduce pain in something like tendonitis, a sprain, a strain, etc., because when you do that, you have a tendency then to have a greater probability of re-injury. So it's great to remove pain, but especially in certain areas like knees and stuff, using a brace or something like that, even beyond just what it does with support, it kind of reminds you, hey, buddy, you got an issue here, slow down. Uh, and definitely all the things Doc said about rest and stuff like that definitely applies. So be careful with things that remove pain, but don't, but remove pain prior to fixing the problem. Comfrey is an amazing plant. It, it, it can't do everything, but it can do a lot of things well. But my experience has been the older an injury, the less that it seems to do in healing the injury. Even if I, you know, I don't have any scientific evidence of this, but I'm going to say even if the injuries were equal. So if you have an injury that is somewhat acute in nature, you pull a muscle, you, you, you stress a tendon, you, you, you pull a ligament, you tear a ligament, not completely off, but have a, a, a tear within the ligament, like I did to my knee. The sooner you start using it, the better your results are likely to be. Again, that's anecdotal evidence. I don't have proof of that. I don't have any studies to cite or anything like that. But it's my personal experience, and it's also my experience in talking to people about their own experience, that it seems like, in general, people that do best start using it right away. And I can definitely tell you, like, one of my remedies here on the farm is if I get in the fire ant somehow, like, to get on my hands and start biting the shit at me, I grab a comfrey leaf, you know, from my little comfrey stash the ducks can't reach and eat, and I just mash it up and I rub it all over those ant bites. If I do that within the first minute, they will completely go away. If I do it after that minute, it will help but you'll still get that kind of longer-lasting effect. Um, and the longer you wait, the more you get, you know, the next day where it almost looks like chicken pox or some shit like that. Like, the faster the better has been my experience with Comfrey. I would say that's also true of cuts and scrapes, but not as much. But when it comes to insect bites, there's, like, bites that, caught, that are uh, involving some sort of venom, or in the case of fire ants, formic acid is what's actually going on a fire ant when it bites you. It bites you and stings you in. It pisses, literally pisses formic acid into the wound. That's what causes all that irritation. Um, same thing with mosquito bites. It seems like if a mosquito bites you immediately and you put it, you get it on there immediately, it, it works a lot better. Uh, it probably has something to do with the um, the irritant that's still on the surface of the skin being neutralized. I don't know. Um, but that's that's been my experience. But definitely with deep tissue injuries, bruising, pain like that, that seems like the faster you get it on there, the better result. All right, next up, John Pugliano on 
investing in crypto. We finally got him to say something about it. And uh, he's going to lead off, though, with should you take your Social Security early? That is a big asset depends. John, take it away. Hello, TSP. We have a couple financial questions. One of them is really complicated. Let's see if we can get them both in. First question is from Groden, and he's asking about taking early retirement and how that would affect his Social Security benefits. Now, in his particular situation, he says that he's going to be 63 this year. He's thinking about taking early retirement because he's worried about things like means testing that may, in the future, start to reduce people's benefits. And even more particularly, he's worried about if they put some type of a means testing on there for people that get vaccinated versus those that don't. He doesn't want to get the vaccine. And so he's concerned about that. He thinks if he takes early retirement, he'll get grandfathered in and he won't have to worry about any of that. Well, a couple things there. Listen, as far as the vaccine, I think you're being a little bit too paranoid there. I wouldn't worry about that. I don't think there's any chance they're going to means test social security benefits and tie it to whether or not you've been vaccinated for COVID-19. But you are correct in terms of getting in early and getting grandfathered in from any future changes they may make. And the problem with that is we just don't ever know what changes may be coming. And we can look in the past of social security and see that they have come out with some surprise decisions and it can have a big impact on your future benefits if you're not already in the system and grandfathered in. Having said that, though, I would be more worried about the overall big issues that affect your Social Security benefits. And the problem is, um, and the reason I can't give you a great answer in this segment for your particular situation, is just that the process is really complicated. And this is one of those times, particularly for people that have more complex financial situations, where it's worth finding a professional, a professional tax CPA that is well-versed in Social Security benefits Now, as a caveat to that, I'd encourage you to not only talk to a CPA that's well-versed in Social Security benefits, but also one that's independent and not affiliated with selling you any types of products. You want a pure fee-only CPA that's going to look at your situation and give you a non-biased assessment of your Social Security benefits. And when I talk about non-biased, I mean someone that's not going to benefit by being a salesman and selling you some other type of financial product, which might be like a whole life insurance policy. The reason this decision can be so complicated to come up with the answer is because there are multiple factors that are involved here. One is that as you retire early, your Social Security benefits are reduced by a particular amount. That's fairly straightforward. That's not that hard to figure out. The real variable there is how long are you going to live and will you live beyond the break-even point? In your particular situation, you were born before 1960, and so your retirement age for full retirement would be 66 years and 10 months. And so if you retire at age 63, your overall benefits would be reduced by, I believe the number would be 24.2%. And at that rate, I've done a real quick calculation, I think that you would have a break-even point where you would have to live to at least 83 before it would make sense to wait until full retirement to taking your benefits. So to put that in perspective, in Groden's case, he could collect Social Security benefits for almost a full 21 years before he reaches break-even point to where it would be beneficial to waiting till, you know, age 67 and taking the full retirement. And so consider your health situation. You know, are you in good health? Do you think you're going to live into your late 80s or 90s? You know, look at your genetic background. What happened with your parents and grandparents? How long did they live? But in your particular situation, if your life expectancy is, you know, just to make it to your early 80s, then there isn't a whole lot of downside to taking the partial payment at age 63. 
There's another factor to consider in there, and this further complicates the, the formula, and that's that if you wait until age 70, which is beyond retirement age, full retirement age would be 67, if you wait to retire until age 70, you can actually get some additional credits which would increase your retirement benefits. Now, if that's not complicated enough, your retirement benefits can also be penalized if you earn too much income in retirement. And when I'm talking about income, I don't mean earned income from a job, but any type of income that would be taxable. So that would be distributions from an IRA account, possibly pensions or disability payments, depending upon what source they're coming from. It would definitely include standard dividends and any type of capital gains. And again, these rules get convoluted. I can only touch on them briefly here, but as an example, if you're under full retirement age, Any retirement income that you make that would be in excess of $18,960, well, any income in excess of that for every $2 you earn, you lose $1 in Social Security benefits. And I believe there's a sliding scale on that as you get up to full retirement years, because I think in the year that you fully retire... That threshold goes up to something about $50,000, and then any amount over that, you can earn $3 and only have your benefits reduced by $1. Now, the good news on all this is is that when you do reach full retirement age, your benefits will be recalculated, and you'll be given credits for the months where your benefits had previously been reduced for earning too much money. Again, though, you got to put that in perspective where you've got to live long enough to make that break-even point pay off. And if that weren't enough, there's another factor you have to take into consideration, which is the taxability of the Social Security benefits. And just to give you an example of how that could affect you, if your overall combined income is over $25,000 and less than $34,000, then up to 50% of your Social Security benefits become taxable. Now, that doesn't mean you lose 50% of your benefits. It just means that 50% of those benefits would be taxed at whatever your standard tax rate is. And then if your combined income is greater than $34,000, up to 85% of your Social Security benefits would be taxable at your ordinary tax rate. So, Grodin, you see this can be a really complicated decision. I think the easiest way to look at it is is that if you don't have very much or no retirement income at all other than your Social Security, or if you don't think your life expectancy is going to take you, say, into your late 80s or into your 90s or, or beyond, then you probably have a simple situation, and it may make sense to take retirement early. All right, I'm running short on time. Let me try and get one more question in. This comes from Matthew, and Matthew is asking about Coinbase stock Is it a good buy, or would he be better off just putting his money into crypto instead? Well, Matthew, full disclosure here, I personally am not invested in crypto, and I have no intentions of buying Coinbase anytime in the near future. But as far as your question, here's my opinion. I personally would not invest in Coinbase, especially if I believe the narrative that cryptocurrencies, and in particular Bitcoin, are really going to continue their explosive growth. And so I think you'd be better off buying directly into something like Bitcoin as opposed to buying Coinbase stock. And think of it this way. Coinbase's future is based on the advancements of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. So really the only way Coinbase is going to profit is if the cryptocurrencies continue to do well. On the other hand, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular is totally independent of Coinbase's success. And so Coinbase needs Bitcoin, but Bitcoin doesn't need Coinbase. The other thing to consider here is that something like Bitcoin has a set number of you know 21 million coins, where Coinbase is like any other stock. And so if the board of directors should choose to, they can continue to dilute the share price by issuing additional shares in the future. 
And really the biggest thing that I don't like about Coinbase is that I think it has come out as a standard, you know, initial public offering with a lot of hype and hula, and I don't think much of it's warranted. When I look at the valuation of Coinbase, you know, based on their current earnings and even what you could expect would be reasonable growth for them, my assessment would be that they're at least a good 10 times overvalued. And so rather than selling at $300 a share, I think if they had a standard financial industry multiple, they'd only be selling for about $30. And the reason I don't think that that higher multiple is warranted is because really all Coinbase has going for it, and this is only my opinion, but all I see that they have going for themselves is that they were an early mover into the crypto space. There are very few barriers to entry to other financial institutions getting into Coinbase's business. If cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular continues to have the adaption curve that it is, then people just won't be going to Coinbase to trade it. They'll be going to everywhere. You'll go to E-Trade and Charles Schwab and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and everybody on Wall Street is getting in on the act. So that will not only reduce Coinbase's market share, but it'll also make pricing more competitive and Coinbase won't be able to charge as much as they do for individual transactions. And so they'll not only lose market share, they'll also be facing a declining profit margin. Well, hey, I'm out of time. As always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. You know, all the stuff on crypto, not crypto, on uh, Social Security is why I say that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme and a scam. Um, the way Social Security should work is if they want to say, you know, at this age you get this and at that age you get that and treat it like any old annuity, that's fine. It should either be taxable or not taxable, one or the other. Take your pick. Let's let it be that. When you say, you know, under a certain amount of income or whatever, people that have under a certain amount of income don't pay taxes anyway on income tax. They just don't. So tax it or don't tax it, you know, determine what kind of taxation it is on it, and you should be able to take whatever. If It's supposed to be a state-provided annuity, and it should come conditionless other than you get this much at this age, that much at that age. Otherwise, it's a scam. It's also a Ponzi scheme because as our population begins to level out and possibly even go into decline, they're not going to be able to fund the damn thing. So I, I, I'm, I'm mixed about what to do. Um, at some point, not that far in the future, we'll have to be making some decisions about this ourselves. So it's it's an interesting thing to be thinking about. I had, I have pretty much always planned with I ain't getting none. I mean, that's, you know, when you get to, to the point of making the decision, if it's still there, fine. Take what you can get where you can get as it makes sense for you. But I, I would just say if you're a young person, you know, if you are in your 30s, you should build your retirement plan with that is icing on the cake. It's not the cake. It's not even the icing, right? It's like, you know, when you, you, you get a piece of birthday cake and then like there's a big old hunk of icing, like a flower or something that's on the other side of the cake. And every once in a while, when you were a little kid, you could kind of get mom or somebody else's mom or somebody to like, hey, can you flip that big old lob of icing onto my piece? And sometimes it would happen. If you're under 30, that's how I'd look at Social Security, just saying. On the crypto thing, um, I, John and I differ on crypto, and uh, right now I'm feeling pretty good about my decision. Um, however, I do agree that I wouldn't put my money into Coinbase or any of these other stocks that are going public that make their money off of crypto, ex with, the ex with an exception. If I 
wanted to get into the crypto space and I had money that I couldn't put directly into the crypto space, I might do it that way. And I'll also give you a little bit different of an opinion on this. A company like Coinbase, until they put crypto on their balance sheet, doesn't necessarily do bad if crypto goes down. So there is some mitigation of risk in this if you look at it a slightly different way. Because here's what I mean. Coinbase doesn't make its money because the price of crypto goes up. It doesn't make its money because crypto go higher. It makes its money due to activity. The more trading on their platform, the more money that they make. That, that's, that's how they make their money. They make their money by having money move from fiat into crypto, crypto into fiat, and inter-crypto. Inter right? Inta and intra-crypto is how they make their money. So if the market goes down, if crypto goes down, it may have a negative impact on investor interest that's outside investor interest, not crypto people, on their stock price as a whole. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will have any impact at all, or any even, or if it does, it doesn't necessarily mean the impact would be poor on 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 income, on the money that they make, on their cash flow, because when crypto drops, people buy the dip. So if you look at the stock market, for instance, a lot of times when the stock market goes down, trading activity might lull. But then it usually there's a frenzy of buying when people feel like, oh, okay, okay, this is... And I think that you might also see a flood of money coming in because there's becoming a bifurcation of like, this is this is okay. Like it was all crypto is bad and drug dealers use crypto and it's bad and crypto is bad and every terrorist TV show was crypto is Bitcoin and like all these people just throwing this term around with no idea and it's bad. And now it's coming to be, well, like, well, it, it, if you're, if you're using it properly and reporting everything to the government, well, it's good crypto and then everybody else is bad. So companies that are public, like Coinbase, may have a lot of investor confidence because they're compliant and they're going to be forced to ensure compliance of their customers. That may not be great news for all the people that are kind of anarcho-crypto people like me, but for the space, it's probably a good thing, right? I'm still not investing there. I still can think of better ways to to use my money that I want in the crypto space, like directly acquiring crypto, especially like completely invisible crypto that you can't see or touch. Like that, that is much more interesting to me. Uh, Monero, R, and some of the other options that are coming. Uh, some of the ways that we're going to be, be able to obfuscate and create privacy within coins that aren't even privacy. Like all that's really interesting to me. It's not that I don't think it's the, it's a, it's, it has potential for a positive return. I just think there's, There's better ways to play that space, and then in your stock space, I think that it's probably not the best play in the stock market right now, especially after a very successful IPO that drove the price up. So that's the other thing. If I was going to do it, I might look for it to, to come down some first because I don't think that the strike price on the IPO is sustainable for Coinbase. I could be wrong, but I, I don't think that I am. That's just kind of my thoughts there. All right, with that, let's move on to the screw splitter.
Deal or dud? Tim the Toolman Cook will take that one on. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back again to answer a question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. So this question says, uh, gimmick or nifty alternative to a wood splitter. That's the title. Saw an ad for the screw splitter. Basically, it screws itself deeper into the wood and splits it. Something we normally hate to see happen when driving a screw into wood. Taken and maximized to perform a new task. For $26. Most of us cannot justify the cost of a pneumatic wood splitter. The cheapest one at Harbor Freight is $140. Especially those of us who may only have an intermittent need to split wood. Even a cheap Harbor Freight axe or sledgehammer runs one eighteen bucks plus another 10 to 12 for a wedge splitter. Does this $25-ish gizmo offer the average homeowner who occasionally needs to split wood an affordable option for doing so with minimal physical exertion? I know that I use my battery-powered hand drill more than any other tool in my inventory, far more than I ever do my sledgehammer. Just thought Tim Cook could chime in on whether this is actually a nifty gizmo or a gimmick. Jason from PA. So Jason, thanks for the question. I had seen these devices advertised online in a few different places, and after you sent this question in, I thought I should do a deeper dive and see what they're all about. Even though I don't burn wood on the prairies, I did spend the first 30 years of my life burning wood and have a ton of experience splitting wood, by hand and with a gas-powered splitter. So anything out there that can make it easier on the body or safer on the hands for splitting wood is a positive in my books. Plus, I'm also a sucker for cool, inexpensive gadgets that have the potential to make your life just a little bit better especially one that I might be able to do a tool time review video on down the road. So I spent a bunch of time watching other people use it online and came up with some conclusions for you. So let's look at the pros and the cons of this little item and see what it's all about. First off, I'm not opposed to buying a tool that is designed for just a single job, like wood splitting, as long as the item does the job and does it adequately enough to justify the expense. The screw splitter is only about 25 bucks, so it isn't a horrible investment, and it uses the power of a tool you already have in a drill driver, so that's a plus as well. But, unfortunately, that seems to be where the positives end. So the idea, the idea behind this is to save time or money, or is it easier or a safer option than traditional splitting of wood? First, it doesn't really seem to save any time at all. Every video I watched, the users were slower splitting wood than a traditional hatchet or an axe or even a hydraulic wood splitter, which tend to be rather slow. But if it was just a bit slower, that wouldn't be an issue. However, almost half the time the user got the screw stuck in the wood and then had a heck of a time getting it to back out. Sometimes they couldn't at all. They'd have to put a wrench onto it. Was it easier than other options? Not really. Most people had to hold on to the wood rather hard so that it wouldn't spin or slide out of the way. They had to push the screw bit harder than using even a small hatchet, and they really struggled when trying to extract it out of the wood. And one of the biggest positives I thought I would find with this was that it would be safer because you aren't swinging a rather sharp hammer-type item directly at your opposite hand. However, in every video I watched, I would cringe as they would push the screw splitter toward their other hand as it held the wood. And I honestly think the chance for a hand injury is just as bad, if not worse, with this than traditional methods. The one type of thing it did do quite well was split fine fire-starting kindling out of an already split down-the-middle piece of firewood. 
I just don't think a person will be happy with this at all. I think it's one of those gimmicks that looks really good on a Facebook or Instagram ad, but would work way less than spectacular in real life. But I can't leave you without options. So what would I recommend? In its function and price, it costs more than a decent ish hatchet. <laughs> so even a hatchet might be a better option. The combined 30 bucks for a sledgehammer and a splitting wedge is probably a much better deal. And you come away with a tool in a sledge that even though you don't use it a ton, does have a myriad of other options other than just a screw splitter would. Other options, hit yard sales and even better estate sales and find a good used hydraulic splitter. Maybe even one that needs a little bit of repair. Maybe it's low on fluid, needs a seal repaired. I'm sure there's videos out there that could help you with that. And a favorite idea of mine is look at those same sales for older splitting malls, sledgehammers, or splitting wedges, the type that were built to last decades. And finally, if you want to buy a hydraulic splitter, maybe think outside the box. It might be out of your price range. Perhaps look at offering a very small side hustle, advertise on Nextdoor or Facebook group, that you're looking to split some firewood or kindling, just very small amounts of wood for people who maybe can't handle it themselves, and line up enough work that will allow you to pay for the wood splitter. Once you have enough work lined up, pull the trigger, grab the wood splitter, and then turn around and put that money right back in your account. And now you have a tool that should last you for, you know, a decade or more. And it was basically free with just a little bit of sweat equity. So I hope that helps. I hope I wasn't too negative on the wood screw splitter gadget. But to me, it just wasn't a safe or decent option. So that's it for me, guys. Drop by my Odyssey channel or YouTube if you're still around over there and check out my latest review series that I just launched called Toolbox Tuesday. It'll be a weekly review series focusing on more on preparedness related items as well as smaller hand tools and accessories and even the occasional around the house item that has made my life just a little bit better. If you want links to any of my content or to follow me on social media, drop by toolmantim.co and follow the links from there. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Bad pun warning. If you buy the screw splitter, you're going to get screwed. That's the basic summation there. And that's what I thought, but I figured I'd give it over to Tim because maybe I would be wrong. I just never really looked into it deeply. Uh, again, I have – I'll see if, if they still have it on their website. I bought this thing from Harbor Freight. It was either $110 – where it was $90 with $20 shipping. So the, the number 110 sticks in my head really, really strong with this, that that was about the price. And basically, you lay this thing down on, you, you lay this thing down on the ground, and it's a horizontal jack type thing with these two long handles that stick out of it. And you can kind of pull them together. You can kind of alternate them either way. And there's a hydraulic jack and a big wedge. And man, it works great. It, I mean, Splitting wood, you gotta have wood seasoned well for it to split well. I'm telling you, it doesn't. When you have a lot of times, a lot of green wood won't split well. It needs to be dried some. And I know that like, what seasons better when it's split. I understand, but generally, you you at least have to let it dry out some before you get a good clean split. Um, some of the really powerful ones, uh, the the electric and gas ones, it, it works great, but. My experience has been if you let the wood dry a little bit, you get a, an easier split. And the one that I have from Harbor Freight, I think of as kind of that that medium point, right? Like I can't really justify a really expensive one, like something that um, 
you tow behind a truck or something. It's one of those really big ones. Uh, but yet, I want something better than a mule mall. And so I'll just, I'll see if I can find it, I'll add it to the show notes. With that, let's hear from uh, Ken Berry on getting enough fat and protein. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question from Kent today. Kent is 67 years old, six feet tall, and weighs 160 pounds. Right off the bat, Kent, I would say that you're pretty near your ideal body weight. I don't think you've got much more to lose there. He's very active. He rides his bike. He works outdoors. But he had tonsil cancer uh, 10 years ago, and, and during the treatment for that, he lost a lot of his salivary gland function. So he, he just doesn't make as much spit in his mouth, and that makes it a challenge when he's chewing up meats and stuff because he doesn't naturally hydrate it with saliva like most of us do. Uh, Kent, some strategies that will help you reach your protein and your fat macros is chop up your meat into small pieces. You may even have to not puree it, but blend it until it's just a very uh, thick, chunky soup and add some healthy fat like uh, beef tallow or bacon fat or even butter. That's going to help to lubricate the meat so that you can swallow it. Uh, I would uh, definitely keep the carbohydrates very low. Uh, Matt actually says that he uses mayonnaise, lard, or butter to help with the, the meat ingestion, and that's perfect. But I would caution, watch out for which oil is used in the mayonnaise. Uh, most mayonnaises and salad dressings are made with either soybean oil or canola oil. If you find out your mayonnaise is made with that, then don't use that. Either buy the mayonnaise made by Primal Kitchen, it uses avocado oil, or you can watch the the how to make your own mayo video on my YouTube channel. It's actually very easy. You can make it with lard or beef tallow, probably even make mayo with butter, and then you can add those. But uh, you really got to get your fat and protein from meat, Kent. I know that the protein drinks make it easy to get to get the protein macro up there, but you got to figure out a way to do it with eggs and real meat by lubricating it with fat. Uh, I don't think you've got much more weight to lose. I think you're doing a great job. Uh, your macros look like they're right on target to me. Matt's using Carb Manager. That's a an app you can get on your iPhone or your Android that helps track how many carbohydrates, protein, and fats you're eating. Uh, don't worry about the, the calorie intake, Kent. Just eat fatty meat until you're full with some of the tricks that I've talked about. And keto on, my friend. You're doing a great job. This is Dr. Barry. All right, guys. So uh, as I'm starting to do, trying to make my life a little easier, I am going to do the quote of the day on the Friday shows as my segment and move it to the end instead of the beginning like we do our other shows. Again, this one's by Jim Rohn. And what he said was, if you don't design your own life plan, chances are you'll fall into someone else's plan. And guess what they'll have planned for you? Not much. Let's take it mostly that way, but let me just, before I even say this, say that maybe what they have planned for you is a lot of bad things. You know, like being a wage slave for the rest of your life, being poor, being in student loan debt for 25 years, uh, being moved into the cities, being uh, dumb enough to take their vaccine and end up with all types of side effects from it for a disease that has almost no chance of killing you whatsoever if you're young and healthy and doesn't prevent spread. Like There's a lot of things that the world seems to have planned for you if you don't write your own plan. And I was 
trying to come up with a quote of the day today, and I didn't real I didn't go looking for this one. I was on Brainy Quote, and I thought, you know what, well, let me just see what their recent quote of the days are that they picked for themselves. And I saw one that I was like, kind of, yeah, yeah kind of like that. I like, clicked on it, and then when you do that, you see associated quotes. And I saw this one, I said, you know, that's a different way of saying something I've said so many times. It's a good discussion for today. And I, I really have tried to teach this mentality now for, I guess, the 13 years that we've been doing the Survival Podcast. I, I, I pretty much led off with this mindset, and I've never let up, and I never will. So I know you've heard some of this before, but uh, I'll try to bring something new to it today. Every single human being's life has value, okay? But much like every, when we look at energy, we have potential energy and kinetic energy. So in other words, we have the energy that potentially can come from a situation. If we wind up a spring and we put a stop on it, right, that's potential energy. If we pull the stop out, that that potential energy will turn into kinetic energy, right? We can do that with like a rubber band and a washer and a paper clip and stick it in an envelope and make somebody think a giant beast coming out of the envelope. You ever play that trick on somebody when you were a kid? If you, if you did and you know how to do it, You should totally teach your kids, like as a homeschool project, how to do that and then like scare the shit out of dad when he comes home or grandma when she comes over or whatever. Just be careful that if grandma's at the edge where like that, that could send her over to cardiac arrest, don't do that, right? But like what a great little thing to do there. But that's, that's potential and kinetic energy. And the value that's in our life is kinetic value, right? And potential value is one way to think about it. In other words, all people have value. Everybody has a value. That and I know you can start talking about really bad people that we we both agree. You know, I think it's interesting that you can dig a 14 foot hole with a backhoe and maybe that's where they need to be is at the bottom of a hole like that. I understand that, but in general, all people have value. Some people go out of their way to destroy that value, like the like reverse kinetic of my my analogy today. So let that go, put it on the shelf, back pocket, whatever. All lives have value, and everybody that lives through their life with any sense of decency, is going to have positive impacts in their own life and in the lives of other people. Almost every human being, even people that don't feel like they're well-loved or cared for, when they're gone, somebody misses them. We only miss things when they're gone if they have value to us. And then within that individual is it, it, through their life they have this kinetic value that they generate. And I'm not talking about money here, though that can be one way of looking at it. It's only one way of, you know, we talked about eight forms of capital recently. That'd be an interesting way to evaluate the value generated during a lifetime. How much of the eight forms of capital were generated by this individual, both directly, so in their own life and direct sphere around them, and indirectly, as in, If they had high intellectual capital and were a great teacher, how many times did it replicate and how many times did it magnify a move like a velocity of money, but it was the velocity of intellectual capital that moved out from them, you know? And it is that type of value that there, in most people's lives, there's more potential than ever becomes kinetic. There's a lot of that spring wound up that they never let loose. They never take the shot. They never give it 100%. They never really try. And the only way to really release as much of your potential 
life force, your potential life value, into the world of being kinetic to where it actually grows and multiplies as it expands outward beyond what even you know about it, is to have a plan for your life. You cannot walk through life aimlessly and live up anywhere near to the potential you have to transfer that life value from potential to kinetic. You can't do it. I've used the analogy before, but it's the best one I have, so I'll use it again. It's like getting in a ship in China and saying, I want to get to Los Angeles in the ship. So you kind of point the ship east and just get it up to speed and figure I'll get somewhere. And you will. You could end up in Hawaii. You could end up in the Aleutian Islands. You could end up in South America. You could end up in Fiji. You could end up kind of turned by a curtain current and end up down near Australia or freaking all of a sudden, what is that big white thing? Mm -hmm. I guess Antarctica is real. The earth really is round. Like all of those things could happen. Or you could end up sailing into the heart of a storm because you're not charting your course and be destroyed and capsized. You could end up stranded on an island somewhere. And in a lot of people's lives, it's a very good way to describe it, stranded on an island. If you plot your course from Shanghai to L.A., You can plot it to the point where knowing the winds, the weather, and everything in your ship and its speed and capabilities and your crew, that you can literally say, we will be there on Thursday around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And people think you can't plot a life that accurately. Well, there is some truth to that. They say if you, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And I think there's some truth to that. But I think in general, you know, we're, when you look at somebody's career, Whatever, however you define that. We generally look at that in the neighborhood of about 30 years of your life. And anybody that's ever forecasted in like sales and marketing knows that the, the longer the period of time you ask for in my forecast, the more accurate that I will be in my results, assuming I know what I'm doing. Like when I was in sales and I was asked to forecast you know, a territory that was going to be about a $220 million territory, if I remember right, like my last year I was there. I think I got my forecast within 2% over a year. 2% over the year. My quarterly forecast would be within 10%. My monthly forecast would be more like within 25%. If you had forced me to do a weekly forecast, I mean, really, you might as well not. Like, all I'm going to do is take the quarterly, right, And divide it by 12. Like, that's, that's how you're going to get a weekly. And if you ask me for a daily, forget about it. Right? So the, the shorter the timeline when we're forecasting something that complex, the less accurate it would be. However, I probably could have sat down, and if the, the people in the company were honest with me about what was coming and what wasn't coming and when it was going to get there, and I had enough forward-looking trends at the market as a whole, I probably could have forecasted bang on five years. And that's a lot like a human, how a human life works. We should be able to get really pretty accurate about our capabilities as to where we're going to get to within a year. Very, very accurate within five years. And if we follow that and monitor that and we think of those five-year increments in our life like waypoints along the way on our journey from you know Shanghai, China to, L to L.A. in a ship, sure, we might run into a storm, but... We'll know how to get around it. We'll have time to think about it. Maybe we actually have to de, you know, go into a port somewhere 
some island along the way, some archipelago or something, and ride it out and wait it out. You know, that's losing a job, relying on some of your savings, retooling your resume and finding a new job or starting a business, right? There's all types of adjustments to be made. But the longer the journey, the more forgiving the adjustments, right? Because the more you have the ability to make up time and compensate, run a little bit hotter uh, with that boiler room and just put a, you know, put a few more knots on the speed of the ship toward the end of the journey once we are back in smooth seas, right? And if we look out ahead and say, hey, we know there's going to be a storm, maybe we just delay departure, right? But sooner or later, the damn ship has got to leave the harbor or it can't go to the other harbor. It can't make the journey. It has to go out in the sea. But only a fool would be a captain of a ship and not plot a course. And only a bigger fool would hire that guy to captain the ship that they own. And most people live their lives that way. They both hire people to do their planning for them that have no idea what they're doing, right? And they take no active role in plotting their own course. And what you end up with is the fact that someone else does have a plan for you. Society in general is planned. The people in power, the people in control have planned out society to where we can literally sit down and look at a person's demographics. This is a true. This is an absolute truth. We can look at the demographic that a person is from, what they're doing, and their basic plans as far as their education, where they live, where they grew up, etc. And by the time they're 18, we can look at how they did in grade school, what they're going into, and we can generally, within a few percentage points, say, this is what this person's life will look like, you know, uh, assuming they don't decide to rob a post office or something and derail it, this is what their life is going to look like at 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. Here's about the age they'll die. Here's about how much money they'll have in retirement. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, it should. The fact that somebody could look at you at kind of any point in your life after 18 Run some demographic data. Look how far you've come, where you're at, and say, this is how you're going to end up. And odds are, the way you'll end up will not be something that you will cheer and yell and scream and be happy about. You'll be pretty dissatisfied with it. And so what do we do instead of figure that plan out for ourselves, determine we don't like the destination, and alter course and compensate and replan? What do we do instead? We dream. We dream. We have hope. Our greatest asset and our greatest detriment at the same time as we learned in the movie The Matrix, right? The architect said that. Hope is your single greatest, I don't remember exactly the quote, but it's like your single greatest at, you know, asset. And it's also your biggest detriment. Because if you hope in something that will never be, you spend your life force doing things you shouldn't be doing. But if you hope in something that can be, and you know what it takes to get to that point, then you have a strength, because now you can do the right things to get there. And, guys, one more time, if you don't do it, it's not somebody will do it for you. R Mr. Rohn, Jim Rohn is a great writer, and he nails a lot of things, and he's like 99% right there. It's not that somebody will do it for you. Somebody already has. We live in a modern caste system 
within the slave plantation that is America. I know that's very hard for some people to hear, but we shifted from classic slavery at the time of the Civil War where a certain number of the commoners were slaves, and they were owned mostly by other commoners and some of what you would refer to in the old world as nobles. And then those slaves had to be cared for. They had to be housed and clothed and fed. And we moved to a modern slavery with the dawning of the Industrial Age where all the commoners became looked down upon as slaves. Because if, if, if having 100% of what you do with your labor and your life taken and owned by somebody else is slavery, it's 100% slavery, if all your efforts, all your work, all the things that you do are owned by a master, right? If that's slavery, and I think we all agree that would be slavery. If you, I owned you and I put you to work on my, my three acres every day, And all the money, all the things that you earned, and only enough was given back to you to like make sure you didn't die. Make, you have a little slave shack in the back. I give you some slave rags, new slave clothing every so often, new pair of shoes once or twice a year, you know, basic medical care like I do an animal. Like you got cut, we need to make sure that's healed because, well, I don't, I don't the same I would do with a draft horse, right? Like I want to make sure that you're okay, but I don't really care about you as a person. I care about you as a piece of property. That would make you my slave. Okay, so what if what if every you have to go take care of all your own shit now, and all of your effort, all of your life force, all of your energy, all the things that you accumulate, all the things you do, I get thirty five, forty, fifty percent of it. What are you now, if not a fractional slave? We live in a system of fractional slavery. That's what income tax is. That's what property tax is. Everything that you acquire, everything that you get for yourself, the master, which is the state, has become the ultimate slave master, takes a portion of it from you. That's a, that's a hard game to win, but it's a game that is winnable. It's a game where you can do better, but you can't do it without a plan. You need a financial plan. Right, your financial plan doesn't just need to be you save 10% of your money and give it to your financial liar, right? It doesn't even need to be just that you you put some of it in Bitcoin or in, into cryptocurrency or privacy coins or uh, silver. Like all those are pieces. Your financial plan needs to include here's how I keep more of my own money. Here's how they get less. Here's how I become less a slave. And if it doesn't have that in it, it's not a plan. Right, or it's certainly not a complete plan. It also needs to hold you accountable. Like if you think you're going to accomplish something by the time you're 30 and you're 25 and you haven't taken the first step to getting there, you're probably not going to do it. It's a dream. It's a hope that's a false carrot. It's worse than the carrot. You know the thing with the donkey and the carrot with the little thing hanging in front of him? The guy's riding the donkey, he has like a fishing pole with a carrot on it. At least it's actually a carrot. At least, you know, the guy doing that to the donkey, at least when the donkey gets where the guy wants the donkey to go, he's probably going to give him the carrot. If you believe you're going somewhere and you're not making any progress and you have no means by which to gauge that and hold yourself accountable, you have a freaking holographic carrot. That is the, the token of the modern slave is they chase a holographic carrot. Not only are they chasing something that they're not catching up to, When they do get where they're going, it won't even be there. It's nothing but a play of light and reflection. Don't do that. You don't have to live this way. You can design your own life. And if you haven't figured it out yet, 13 years at TSP, that's what we've been teaching you how to do. 
We call it the Survival Podcast because survivalism is building non-brittleness into your life. And that is lifestyle design. That is lifestyle planning. That's what it really is. But you know what? In 2008, if I created the Lifestyle Design Podcast, nobody would have freaking listened. There's a marketing lesson in that right there. With that, we've wrapped things up. Let me remind you guys, if you want to help support the show and the work that we do, you can do that by doing your online shopping. Where? Where, guys? Where? Say it in your head so you don't forget it. Tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, Tspaz.com. Today's item of the day, much like the one I did earlier this week where I talked about hose nozzles, this is one like I've had my deranged boomer moments where I've thrown things across the fence and they don't make them like they used to, right? And I really, when I, th when I say that for you boomers, right, because I'm a Gen Xer and we just bust everybody out, right, I'm not even really thinking about boomers. You just happen to be the age now. Right, that you get you get lumped in with it. I'm really thinking about like my grandfather, my World War II Gen grandfather. Right, that would have been him. I don't like things like they used to. Damn it, throw it away. You know, it's the garden trowel. Man, I've been through so many garden trowels, and I found this one. It's made by a company called A.M. Leonard. If you've heard of them, you know they're all quality all the time. It is thick, heavy duty, one piece forged aluminum. It, I'm not saying you can't bend it or break it. I'm saying if you're using it as a garden trowel, you can't. There's nothing you're going to do with a hand trowel that will ever bend or break this thing. I've had mine now for well over a year. It looks brand new. It's comfortable and it works. And the reason you buy it is always be frugal, never be cheap. Cheap always costs more in the long run. Cheap will always cost you more across the lifetime of a thing. I have thrown away so much Freaking junk garden tools. I won't buy them anymore. I look now, I, when I think of something like a garden trowel or something like that, I'm like, you know, there is no reason this shouldn't be a decades-long or even lifetime purchase. You know, I think the hose nozzles I found, they're decades-long purchase. They're like five to ten years at least lifespan. This, I, I'll probably lose it because I lose shit, just to be honest. If I don't, I can't see where my grandkid won't be telling his grandkid to plant tomatoes with it. That's how badass they are. Check them out again. They're like 26 bucks. I know that's a lot for a little hand shovel, but it isn't if you buy one for good. The A.M. Leonard Garden Trial, and you can always help us out no matter what you buy. If you do your online shopping, where? tspaz.com. That, and we are ready for the song of the day. We're wrapping up a fun week of music, right? It was 420 week. I know it's not everybody's thing, um, but I think you'll enjoy this song even if, if, if you don't partake at all. This is by Toby Keith, and I can't remember the other artists singing with him. It's a live performance, and I'm going to play the whole thing, including the intro. And it's called, I'll Never Smoke Weed with Willie Again. And uh, to my buddy Hatch, if you happen to tune in today, this one's for you, man. Take care, everybody. Have a great weekend. It's been Jack Spearco with another episode of the Survival Podcast. You're having a good time. Hey. These artists have one thing in common. We've all ended up on Willie's bus after the show, and me and my buddy Scott Emmerich wrote a song about it. I think y'all can figure it out. I always heard that his herb was top shelf. <laughs> Lord, I just could not wait to find out for myself. Well, don't knock it till you tried it. I've tried it, my friend I'll never smoke weed with Willie again 
hard lesson in a small Texas town. He fired up a fat boy and he passed him around. The last words I spoke before they took me in. I made discount bungee jump, but I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. Never smoke weed with Willie again. My party's all over before it began. You could pour me some old whiskey river, my friend. But I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. Let's go down to Texas, y'all. Now we're passing the guitar, telling good jokes. I could tell one was coming, cause I'm smelling smoke. No, I do not partake, I just let it pass by. With a grin on my face and a great contact high. I'll never smoke weed, really again. My party's all over before it began. You can pour me some old whiskey river, my friend. I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. In the fetal position, with drool on our chin, we broke down and smoked weed with Willie again. 